Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. Today I'm pleased to talk to Vincent Chow, a former Chief of Staff of Taiwan's National Security Council and Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and now a politician in the Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, in Taipei. Vincent, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dimitri. It was great meeting you back in Munich, and I'm happy to be on this show. Um, so I'm currently um, working as a counselor in Taipei City Council, my first elected position um, since uh, last uh, November. But previous to that, I served as our political director in Taiwan's representative office in Washington, D.C., and part of that in various capacities in government. I've been with President Tsai um, since uh, 2013, uh, helping out um, both in her think tank and her foundation and ultimately her administration. So it's great to talk to you. It's great to kind of hear your thoughts as well, Dimitri, about the situation we're in as well as sort of outlooks in terms of what are the best ways to maintain security here in the Taiwan Strait. Well, thank you for having us. And for our listeners, uh, we're sort of deviating from our regular scheduled programming, talking a lot about the war in Ukraine, to talk about the other major conflict that is potentially looming in the world, in the Indo-Pacific, and that is uh, the potential that hopefully never occurs, but of uh, China's invasion of Taiwan. And as you mentioned, Vincent, we met each other at the Munich Security Conference earlier this year and had some great interactions on some of these issues. I thought it would be great to have you on just to explain to our audience the Taiwanese perspective. We often hear about what the U.S. may or may not do. We talk about what China may or may decide to do with regards to Taiwan. But we rarely get the sense of how the Taiwanese people and politicians thinking about this challenge, this really existential challenge that they may be facing. And I thought it would be good to start with a little bit of a primer for our audience, just very briefly, on the political system in Taiwan. As you mentioned, you're a politician, the DPP, the currently ruling party in Taiwan that won the election in 2016. President Tsai, the current president of Taiwan, is a member of that party. It is a party that is a little bit more forward-leaning on not quite independence, or at least announcing building independence. Building a stronger Taiwanese identity. Building a stronger Taiwanese identity. Thank you. Uh, very well put. But then you have the other major party in Taiwan, the KMT, the Kuomintang, that had ruled Taiwan since uh, 1949, when the Nationalist Party lost on the mainland to the communists and fled to Taiwan, and initially had a dictatorship. There was now uh, a democratic movement out of which the DPP had emerged, in the 80s and, and a slow democratization process in the 90s. But KMT remains the major power in Taiwan. And there are elections coming up next year where the uh, current vice president from the DPP is expected to run against the KMT. Explain to us a little bit about the current political environment and the positions of those parties, because KMT, a lot of people think is sort of pro-Beijing. Maybe that's a little bit too much, but they're certainly more accommodating to China and just explain where they're coming from and where DPP th sees things from. So it's quite interesting. When I was in D.C., there was a growing trend in universities across the U.S. to talk about uh, Taiwan history, and their college-level courses taught about it now. So what we're going to try to do is squeeze a semester's worth of classes in the next few minutes we have here. So it's going to be quite complicated, and it's going to be a short roller coaster ride, so just bear with me. But the whole history begins really um, in 1911 when the Qing dynasty was overthrown and um, the Republic of China was established. Um, 
the, the Republic of China was established, but immediately ran into headwinds, both in terms of domestic uh, instability as well as um, the Second World War and then ultimately a communist uprising. So the communist uprising succeeded in throwing out the ruling um, authoritarian party of the Republic of China, which was the Chinese Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang, out of mainland China, and then they fled to Taiwan in 1949. Now, Taiwan is also an interesting case study in the sense that it was only returned to the Republic of China in 1945 after defeat of imperialist Japan, and Taiwan had been a colony of Japan since the late 19th century. So, Taiwan had just returned to the ROC in 1945, and then the KMT, the Chinese Nationalist Party, lost the Civil War to the communists and fled here in 1949. So already you can see that there is a mismatch of identity politics here. In 1949, um, the Kuomintang relocated their central government here to Taiwan, and then they set up an authoritarian dictatorship that had ruled Taiwan through martial law all the way into the 1980s. Following Taiwan's economic miracle in the 70s and 80s, there were a growing chorus of support for Taiwan's democracy and freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and so forth. And ultimately, um, uh, martial law was lifted in the late 1980s. And then we saw kind of successive local and then central government elections in the years following. And so in 1996, we held our first ever direct presidential election. Uh, election through universal suffrage. So there was the sole process there. The DPP, which is the party I belong to, really came about through the process of democratization in the 80s and 90s. There were a bunch of in um, freedom-minded lawyers, uh, professionals, and urban folks and intellectuals that had advocated not only for a stronger Taiwanese identity, but also this idea that we needed democracy and we needed freedom and we, we wanted to see the end of this authoritarian rule. So how this has manifested in years past is that, so in 1996, we held our first ever presidential election. In 2000, we held our first transfer of power, which is peaceful from the KMT to the DPP. In 2008, power transferred back to the KMT. And then in 2016, the DPP led by the current president, President Tsai Ing-wen won again. Now, this is the, the history of these two political parties have manifested itself into two different political ideologies, uh, particularly in respect to cross-strait. So on the KMT side, they still hold on to this notion that they represent all of China, that the ROC, Republic of China, never gave up its claim on China and that Taiwan is a part of China. But this China, in their view, is this Republic of China that essentially had ended in 1949 and then had lost international recognition in 1972 to 79. And Vincent, certainly that was true throughout the dictatorship era, but it, that is still true today that the regular sort of party members of the KMT still believe that it's one China and they one day will rule Beijing. The, not necessarily one day rule Beijing, but the party doctrine right now on the KMT side is that there is but one China and that this China in their interpretation is the Republic of China. And so in a sense, they deny the existence of the People's Republic of China. And in the past, this haziness has allowed them to negotiate a series of agreements, in their view, uh, with China, for example, in, in the so-called 92 consensus, which was a formula that suggested that both sides, you know, the Chinese, uh, the PRC side and the ROC side, you know, agreed to this idea that there's one China with different interpretations. And that formed the basis of the KMT's interactions with um, 
with Beijing. Um, now, the DPP holds on to an entirely different view because we believe that this is just so divorced from reality that there's just no way it makes sense in the 21st century. I mean, the PRC obviously has is is the PRC, and and this is uh, I mean, their existence I think is hard to deny in the current landscape and, and geopolitical sense. So, the DPP essentially believes that yes, the ROC is a, a sovereign, independent country, uh, but the sovereignty of the ROC is rested in the 23 million people of Taiwan. Essentially, that you know that the ROC and the PRC, Republic of China, and the People's Republic of China, you know, uh, are not under each other's jurisdictions. They're they're two essentially different entities here, and so the DPP, you know, believes in a sense that that yes, the, you know, the Taiwanese people um, have chosen through elections again and again that where our sovereignty lies and our sovereignty is in Taiwan. And there is no need to declare, redeclare, for example, the Republic of China or other de jure methods of sovereignty or independence, because essentially we are an independent and sovereign country. And we have been for decades past. And, and you know, we our formal name is Republic of China. But, you know, most people see us as Taiwan, including domestically. So, I mean, you, you can't, it's, it's, there are people in the media that try to portray the DPP as, you know, very radical pro-independence, you know, de jure independence, people that want to upset the status quo. I think President Tsai in particular has been very, very careful on this issue. And what she's tried to build up is sort of a consensus within Taiwan that that we are a democracy um, and that, you know, we are already an independent sovereign country called the Republic of China. And there's no need to declare de jure independence, but we are separated. We are different from the People's Republic of China. We are not under each other's jurisdiction. And, and to so, be clear, you know, it's, to be clear, the reason that people may be concerned about this is that the fear is that if Taiwan proclaims independence, that would give Beijing an excuse and potentially even force their hand through internal politics in Beijing to actually launch an invasion. Well, that's precisely it, Dimitri. So, you know, in terms of all of these conceptualizations of what we look like, what our national identity is, to a certain extent, they're influenced and they're shaped by how we feel reactions across the strait could go. And we have to keep in mind that that we do have a neighbor that is, you know, 60 times our size in terms of population that is that has a huge army, huge navy, has, you know, hundreds of missiles aimed directly at Taiwan. It has made it a political commitment of theirs to invade Taiwan um, through military force if they feel that um, their political situation is jeopardized or if they feel that, you know, Taiwan is moving too far away. So both parties have had to, you know, find ways of existing sort of under this landscape. And so on a KMT side, you know, they tend to think that the best way is to be to acknowledge this idea that we're part of China, that Taiwan is part of China. And, you know, and the whole China, you know, including kind of mainland China and that and that the best way is to discuss discussions and negotiations and dialogue with Beijing on the DPP side. We just don't buy that because, well, number one, we are a sovereign independent country. We, I mean, we've been called revoked now. We have our own Navy, Army, Air Force. We have Constitution. We make our own laws. I mean, there's never been a PLA soldier in the history of kind of cross strait tensions that's ever stepped foot here on Taiwan. Um, and at the same time, you know, um, we believe that we should keep Beijing at arm's length because we understand sort of their military intentions towards Taiwan. And we feel the best way of protecting ourselves isn't to lower our guard and engage in, you know, discussions that may or may not bear fruit, but discussions that are nevertheless based on these preconditions set by Beijing. 
we believe that the best way to maintain peace is to have a robust um, defense, uh, to have great relations with international partners, democracies around the world, to ensure that the international community feels a stake kind of in the defense of Taiwan. So these, these are two different, completely different ways of thinking about the cross-strait situation. And, and this is sort of the main differentiation between political parties here in Taiwan. So I guess the key question that the Americans are wondering, that policymakers here in D.C. are wondering, particularly looking at the events of last year in Europe, is, is Taiwan go, going to be Ukraine? So should the unthinkable happen and should China launch an invasion, how many Taiwanese people are going to pick up arms and defend their country in the way that Ukraine has done? And, and I'll tell you, Vincent, before you start answering, is that I've had a number of interactions with various folks in Taiwan over the years that have been saying to me on one hand that they want to be an independent country, they, 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 they don't view themselves as part of China, but on the other hand, basically saying that unless they get X, Y, and Z, certain weapon systems, etc., from U.S., they'll just give up. And I look at that and I say, well, the Ukrainians didn't give up just because they didn't get all the weapon systems right away from the West. They got some of the weapon support, but they certainly didn't get the Patriots and the tanks and the HIMARS and everything else that they're getting now, but they still chose to fight for their country. And when you look at the numbers, it is a country, as you said, of 23 million people, at least five to six million of them are military-age males. So it seems to me that if you sort of become the porcupine that everyone wants you to become, sort of an Israel or a Finland, where you mobilize and you highly train your, your military-capable population, invasion really becomes an impossibility. For China, the numbers are just going to be too great for them to, to succeed. So the root of the question is, will Taiwan fight? And if so, why aren't we seeing a lot of the preparations that you would expect to see, given the threat environment? So to really think about this problem, we got to look at, I think, Ukraine back in 2014 rather than 2022. And so the invasion of Ukraine had really started in 2014 after Maiden with um, Russia uh, essentially annexing uh, Crimea and parts of the Donbas. And, and so you could see that Prior to that phase, um, the Ukrainians not really believed that Russia was a threat. And and in fact, prior to Maiden in 2014, you know, um, a majority of people actually thought Russia was a great neighbor, um, at least for, for, for many people. Um, and so I, in terms of comparing Taiwan to Ukraine in 2014, we're a lot more advanced in the sense that we've, we, we kind of know the threat we're under. Uh, we're making reforms, we're making preparations, we're not waiting for parts of Taiwan's offshore islands to be annexed uh, by force um, to start. And so, it, you, you know, we have a running start compared to Ukraine in 2014. Now, whether that running start is going to be enough to deter a full-on invasion, um, I think, is is the primary question people have in mind. Um, I will first bring up another point as well that's worth thinking about as we delve into this answer, which is identity politics in Taiwan. It's it's as complicated, if not more complicated, than in Ukraine. Ukraine, you had a majority, you had you had a lot of people, uh, the majority in sort of the eastern regions that were Russian speakers. You have a president that spoke Russian as his mother tongue. Um, in in Taiwan, all of us, ninety um, percent, with the exception of you know some. Um, Hakka, Aboriginal, and some other uh, smaller uh, groups, ethnic groups, uh, speak Chinese, um, um, Mandarin Chinese. 
and and identity politics here, um, there is a majority of people that belong to the Kuomintang, the KMT, that believe in some sense that we are Chinese, and that you know that that there is no differentiation between Taiwan and China. Now, the majority of DPP supporters not, don't necessarily see it that way, but certainly a large number of KMT supporters do. And so, what you essentially have is you have political parties that are based on ideology, political ideology in one sense, but also based in some sense on ethnicity on, and on national identity and on upbringing and on, on on how you see Taiwan's history. So anyways, I just wanted to put that in context because people always see Taiwan as this completely unified but bewildered actor in this, in the sense that, you know, yes, you know, Taiwan should see the threat every day, uh, but how come nobody does anything? But I wanted to share that because... N- that's 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 only representative of part of Taiwan society. There's a part of Taiwan society that just doesn't see the threat and doesn't believe that they're a threat and believes that maybe even if both sides were unified, that this would be, you know, consistent with their perceptions of national identity. So I just want so to I just want to zoom in on that. So you're saying that there's a significant portion of the Taiwanese population that would be okay with the Chinese Communist Party ruling Taiwan and ruling their lives. I didn't say significant, but I did say that there were a number, and and it's it's true. I mean, if you look at their unification parties here in Taiwan, there's the new party at, um, in Taiwan that advocates for unification. The KMT, you know, advocates for unification, kind of in the long run as well. Now, now all of them profess to say that that well, you know, nobody wants to live under communist rule. But you know, to be realistic, if you're talking about unification, it's not going to be the other way around. I mean, there's going to be one big act and one smaller act here, and trust me, we're not going to be the big one. So my, my point being is that it's a it's a difficult and complex issue here in Taiwan. And so there is no 100% unified voice. And, and you know, in a sense, that didn't exist in Ukraine prior to 2022 either. Uh, and that certainly does not exist here in Taiwan today. But I will say this. The majority of people kind of across the political spectrum, there are cons- points of consensus. And the points of consensus is that Number one, we do live in a free and democratic society. Number two, we would like to protect this free and democratic society in our way of life. Number three, we don't want to see war. So how do you find, how do you make the best actions with all of this in mind? Right? I think that's the question for policymakers here in, in Taiwan. So back to your question itself, you know, so, um, so the DPP was elected in 2016 and the DPP does have a view that's different from the KMT. The DPP does believe in many senses that, that defense is the best deterrent and that with in the absence of cross-strait dialogue, um, that that the best way of ensuring Taiwan's survival and to maintain sort of the points I've outlined above, keeping Taiwan free, democratic, our way of life, you know, and so forth, is to enhance deterrence. So the DPP is moving on deterrence. And so we've increased the defense budget from about 1.7% to 2.4%. We've reintroduced conscription of a year. We've bought kind of new um, weaponry, both domestic and from overseas, we've we oriented our military strategy from a more conventional approach to an asymmetric approach. And all of these um, actions are ongoing. I think the legitimate question, um, you know, if I could say that, is is not necessarily whether Taiwan is moving in the right direction, is whether we're moving fast enough in the right direction. Like we're, we're you know, increasing defense budget, conscription, you know, um, new weaponry, um, asymmetric tactics, all of this is right. But the question is, are we moving wholesale, kind of in a holistic way, fast enough? I think that is the question. Now, to to the last point um, you made about the Taiwanese people's willingness to fight, I'll say it like this, like, again, 
um, if you if you draw comparisons uh, to Ukraine, I mean, the will of the Ukrainian people really shone through after they were invaded, not before they were invaded. I mean, before they were invaded, you had people rotating in and out of the Donbass. You had 600,000, um, you know, conscripts and, and, and troops at one point. Um, but, you know, all of this was because of the threat, not before the threat. Um, and so it becomes oh, to, to it's, your it's point, very hard. To your point, Russia took Crimea without firing a shot. And a lot of the Ukrainian soldiers who were based in Crimea not only surrendered, but basically joined the, the Russian military at the time. So, so the point is, it's actually very hard to mobilize a populace in peacetime. And it's very hard to mobilize a populace when the threat is not pressing. Um, and, and to be fair, the threat is not pressing today. It, it will be pressing. I mean, it could very likely be pressing in a few years. But, but I think given the circumstances, Taiwan has done the best we can do. Maybe not the best, but, but we're doing what we can politically at this point to mobilize ourselves in sort of the peacetime scenario we're in right now. There's been a lot of concern in the United States in recent years about Russia and disinformation and whether the Russians have been able to influence our elections or not in past times. There is a lot of concern now about what China may be doing with disinformation, misinformation in Taiwan. How much of that is truly a concern? How active do you think China is in that sphere and how effective it might be? So, number one, absolutely a huge concern. Number two, China is absolutely in this sphere. And number three, you know, our, our fear for others is that Taiwan is a test basket. And, you know, we're seeing increased actions, Chinese um, um, gray zone tactics, Chinese infiltration tactics, Chinese disinformation, kind of in democratic societies other than ours as well, such as Australia is has been a huge target. Uh, Canada election tampering is, is has been a big story there. Uh, for the past couple of weeks, but certainly, I mean, it's 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 an exportable um, sort of set of actions, um, and and successes here and successes elsewhere will translate into successes kind of in other countries as well. And um, what what are you so, seeing? Is it overt sort of propaganda for the KMT against the DPP, or is there some nuance, some covert actions? What are you actually seeing on the ground? So it's actually very sophisticated. So if you look at sort of decades ago when this whole propaganda war started, it really consisted of kind of like loudspeakers, like position on kind of um, um, uh, the, the, the shore opposite our offshore islands in like Fujian province. And they would mount these huge letters and, and have like loudspeakers blaring all the time, like communist ideology. And, and, and now in the 21st century, it's, it's, it's so much more sophisticated than that. And, and they're finely tuned to kind of exploit weaknesses within free and democratic societies. So case in point, um, just recently, actually, there was um, somebody um, that was employed by Radio Sputnik in D.C. that made a satirical post about Biden having this plan to essentially destroy Taiwan, um, to, to, to leave Taiwan like a wasteland if, if China was, um, were to invade. And it was obviously, I mean, satire. I mean, you could tell by passports, you could tell by kind of this history that was satire. And but by the way, Radio Sputnik pro- is a Russian state-owned media. That's right. And and so and so there was this pro-China Beijing politician um, here in Taiwan, and pro-Beijing in the sense that he he is very pro this idea of one China, and he frequently espouses kind of Chinese talking points, PRC talking points here in Taiwan that amplified this and gave a legitimacy and said that Biden actually does have 
this plan to destroy Taiwan and that, you know, we should be very wary of it. We shouldn't trust these Americans. And then the kind of the, the, the media outlets that have traditionally been more pro Beijing talking points came out and amplified that again and gave it additional layer of legitimacy. And then the, the final kick of this is then the like Chinese officials started commenting on this. So, so you saw like, um, both the Taiwan Affairs Office as well as I think it was the Foreign Ministry of the PRC come out and say, well, you know, this is certainly something that should be of concern to Taiwan compatriots, this idea that Americans have of destroying Taiwan. And so it just became this whole layered approach to disinformation that allowed this whole thing to proliferate in Taiwanese society for, for days, if not weeks. And what ended up happening was that some people believe this. I mean, some people won't believe it. Some people never believe it, but some people will believe this and some people will take this at face value. And this, and this additionally, I think damages kind of U.S. credibility for absolutely nothing the U.S. did here in Taiwan. And, and these are examples that, I mean, this is a recent example that happened about two weeks ago, but these are things that happen all the time here in Taiwan because they exploit the free press, they exploit free speech, they exploit this idea of 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 attaching kind of nonsensical claims to people with uh, purported legitimacy. Um, so that's kind of on the the media aspect. Well, but let me just other... ask about that, Vincent, because sure. one of the things that the Russians have learned really well from the Soviet Union era is that the more effective propaganda is not the one that's pushing your own ideology, because they found out over the course of decades during the communist era that very few people wanted to live under the Soviet Union or communist regime. And that propaganda, no matter how much you push it out, is not going to work. But what they're doing now is not necessarily promoting the virtues of the Putin government and recommending that everyone else adopt the same same government, but trying to take everyone else down. So it's not about promoting themselves. It's about finding fissures and, and taking down the West, taking down America, and so forth. So are the Chinese taking the same methodology where it's not necessarily about promoting Beijing, but trying to discredit the West trying and to discredit the West. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 keep in mind, they do it with always a veneer of truth. Like it's not some it's it's to us, it's completely irrational. But to people that have already kind of opened the door a bit to this irrationality, then the door swings a bit open or like even if they don't trust this hundred percent, it sells doubt. So so this feeds into this idea of what the what what many pro Beijing talking point outlets have said here in Taiwan, which is that Ukraine is a victim of kind of great power competition between Russia and China. Like the Ukrainians are suffering because of decisions the U.S. made rather than pe- uh, those decision makers in Moscow. And 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 Taiwan shouldn't be a pawn in that. And with this this whole example shouldn't be replicated here in Taiwan. So that's a talking point that's already out there. That's been fed for weeks and months after the Ukrainian conflict started. And on, on another point of that, you know, um, this I, this idea that that you know things are outside of our control, and that really it's this it's the West that's setting Taiwan up for conflict, and the West wants our semiconductor technologies. They want you know to use Taiwan as a bulwark against China, but uh, you know Taiwan is unwilling. That, there, there's a lot of kind of weird out there, to to be honest, Dimitri. But my point is that everything feeds together, everything is self reinforcing. And so this idea about Biden destroying Taiwan, you know, to us, it's completely far-fetched. But to people that already started to accept this idea of great power competition, of Taiwan being a pawn, of Taiwan kind of being stuck in the middle without any agency of its own, the blah, 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 then it starts to feel like this is reinforcing that idea and that, you know, this is a legitimate area of discourse. 
So that's the problem, Dimitri, that demo democratic societies face, you know, in Taiwan. But I think you will start to see this in the United States as well in a growing sense in terms of Chinese propaganda and Chinese ways of influencing public opinion. So, Vincent, you mentioned semiconductors, and there's this been this idea for 20 years or so in Taiwan of this concept of a silicon shield, the idea that because Taiwan, primarily through one of, one of its companies, TSMC, which is the largest manufacturer of chips in the world, both advanced chips as well as more mature or foundational chips, as I call them, because it has so much expertise and so much production capacity that not just the West but China relies on, that it's going to have some sort of deterrent effect and China won't invade Taiwan because there is a silicon shield, presumably with the assumption that should there be an invasion, that the Chinese will not get the equipment and the technologies that's in those fabs because they'll get destroyed either through unintentional action during warfare because these are really sensitive technologies. So if you have sudden power cuts, for example, you may damage equipment and, and, and production capacity, but also maybe through intentional acts as well. And now I'm hearing that there's some concern in Taiwan that maybe is being promoted by China, maybe is spreading on its own, that because the West and particularly the United States are looking at this reliance that we have on Taiwan in the semiconductor space and trying to reduce it through our own investments in the CHIPS Act here domestically, trying to incentivize companies like TSMC and others from abroad to come in and build facilities here in the United States, that that is reducing Taiwan's ability to deter China and reducing the effectiveness of Silicon Shield. Is that real? Is that a, is that a feeling that's widespread among the uh, population? And what do you personally think about Silicon Shield? Oh, I... You know, to be honest, Dimitri, and my position may differ from others in my political party, but I, I, I personally feel the Silicon Shield is a complete farce. Like, it just does not exist. And and there's a rational reason behind why Silicon Shield does not exist. It's because assuming that a chip shortage, and keep in mind, Taiwan, you know, we we don't necessarily dominate all chips, but we dominate high-end chips. So, like, most high-end chips are made here in Taiwan, um, you know, the three nanometers and, and below and so forth. But assuming, for example, a chip shortage, particularly of the high-end kind, damages everyone. It damages the global economy, smartphones, cars, electronics, TVs, everything is impacted. Then the question becomes, who has a high tolerance for pain? And I'm not sure democratic societies are going to win that over a communist society like China. So, I... So again, that's assuming this hurts everybody equally, but I have no reason to, to see why this will not hurt everybody equally because shortages of cars, whether in America or China, shortages of iPhones or other high-end kind of smartphones in the U.S. or China or the West, blah, blah, it hurts everybody. Uh, there's going to be huge consumer backlash, and I'm just not sure, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm emphasize that I'm not sure that the U.S., and, and in fact, I don't believe that the U.S. and other Western countries can take that pain more effectively than a command control economy like the PRC. And so this this idea that the PRC will not invade Taiwan because it causes pain, I, to me, just does not make sense. Because the Chinese have shown incredible tolerance for pain. They've shown incredible tolerance for self-inflicted pain. Um, COVID is one example. You know, zero COVID, after world, mean. zero COVID. Uh, I mean, dynamic zero COVID, but the world had moved on from COVID from COVID for an entire year and a half uh, while China was still locking people up 
in quarantine centers and shutting down entire swaths of their economy and 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 closing down kind of Shanghai and and many other kind of their frontline top tier cities and so forth and and they did this to fulfill a political mandate which is to ensure that cases did not spike in their view before um the the twentieth party Congress where Xi Jinping would um needed um political legitimacy and political strength. And so there's little reason to believe, at least to make optimistic predictions, that the Chinese would feel that to achieve a larger national rejuvenation goal of unifying Taiwan, that they're not able to take pain. Like that just, to me, boggles the mind. And especially if that pain, again, manifests in a much, much more pronounced way in Western societies in a way where ultimately it could create dependence on China rather than the other way around. Um, well, this is, when, this is what I don't understand about this Silicon Shield argument, is that if you believe that China will not invade because of its dependence on Taiwan for chips, then it seems like the, the natural outcome from that perspective would be policy to deny China as much production of chips as possible. And yet you have major Taiwanese companies, including TSMC, but also others, building fabs, helping Chinese, uh, mainland Chinese, to learn how to manufacture semiconductors, evolve their capabilities, because the process technology is ultimately what's really unique here. And you're in fact enabling China in some ways to reduce their dependence on you over the long term. So in effect, you, Taiwan itself is contributing to this decreased deterrence if it ever existed. Well, Dimitri, I mean that's, I mean that's not limited. This this kind of short sighted ideology is not limited to Taiwan. It's limited. It's it's it extends to every multinational that has to, that had had to engage in tech sharing or kind of. Joint I know, but Vincent, or, like we're we're not in danger. The United States is not in danger of being invaded by China uh, anytime soon. Taiwan is right. So the perspective, it would seem to me would be quite different in Taiwan, but, but, where if people think it's an existential threat, you'd be more worried about it than perhaps a multinational in California that's really not worried about that, that point. Right. But, but, the, but, but the point is, the existentialist, this idea of an existentialist threat really just arose in the past couple of years. So what, what you referred to, for example, in kind of tech sharing and TSMC setting up plans, I mean, all of this took place uh, decades ago, or if not a decade ago, when, when, when they believed truly as with MNC's older world that China would become more free, democratic, have a free market economy and engage in peaceful trade over world. And, and sort of that, I mean, to be clear, I mean, to be clear, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying that there is a whole historical background behind why they decided to go to China. And, and in fact, how government policy to a certain extent even encouraged it at the time, having kind of lower tire chip manufacturers and chip plants and chip technologies go to China. Um, now, obviously, that has completely changed. And I think these chip manufacturers also know that. And so I, I struggle to find any kind of new major investment cases in, in China. But I think the bigger issue isn't really setting up the plans. I, I don't see that happening. I think the bigger issue is how much end-use monitoring our chip manufacturers are doing in China. So, for example, I, I think, and I, I'm, I'm making assumptions here, but I think assumptions that are based on educated material that's out, well, informative material that's out there, that there are ships from Taiwan that are going into PLA military systems, including missiles. And so how do you prevent that from happening? So, I mean, these are questions I think that that Taiwan needs to confront head on, to be frank, Dimitri. So let's talk about the military dimension here, because ultimately, if deterrence does fail and there is an invasion, 
whether or not U.S. comes to Taiwan's aid, and there are real questions about that, you, you do have President Biden on four occasions at least publicly saying that we will come to Taiwan's defense, and on one occasion saying explicitly that he will send American troops to fight for Taiwan. But that aside, we're far away. Guam is in Okinawa, our nearest territories. And if there is war, those initial days, you likely will have to stand on your own before we can even come to your defense. And there is a real question of, is Taiwan prepared for that fight? Not just from a will perspective, but from a capability perspective. Because over the years, there's been a lot of military purchases of Western equipment that people sort of look at and scratch their heads at of, is that really going to contribute to your defense? So for example, a big focus on buying M1 Abrams tank platforms, which on a small island that's, you know, hilly island that's very urbanized as well, uh, you don't see a big potential for tank battles in potentially in preventing an airborne assault on port facilities or airports being a big contributor. There's a big focus on buying F-16s. There are, what, about a, a dozen airbase around the island whose runways could be destroyed with missile strikes in the first hours of the war. So it's a question of whether you'd be able to even take off any of these planes should you get them. And these are very, very expensive platforms, right? So it's not a question of like, let's buy it all. It's about prioritization. What do you buy? What do you not buy? And there's not been as much of a focus on smart mines, on long-range anti-ship missiles that could potentially thwart an invasion across the strait. So why is that? And, and I know this is a question that mm-hmm. I've had mm-hmm. discussions with congressmen here in the United States uh, and other policymakers quite a bit. Why is Taiwan investing in these technologies that don't seem to have as much of an impact on their defense, and they're quite expensive, versus cheaper but also more numerous things that you could get that would better contribute to your defense? Is that because the military disagrees with that analysis fundamentally, or are they focused on the wrong things? Well, I mean, the short answer to your question is that Taiwan is having a hard time sort of fitting a generational shift in strategic thinking into five years or less. And I'm not making excuses for Taiwan. I'm not making excuses for MND, but this is the truth of the matter, is that is that there is a generational shift in military strategy that needs to take place and in a very, very short period of time. And 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 I think we're not fully there. And that that has taken place, I think that that it has been challenging to be honest dimitri so i'll i'll say it like this um if you look in the 1990s and and before we had the technological superiority in terms of our military the, i mean the PLA had aging soviet planes um you know there was nobody serious that could ever fathom them putting together a a, a legitimate incredible landing force against taiwan there was just no question that they would not uh there was no question that they would there was there was, I guess, no question that they would not achieve kind of air and naval superiority in the in the, in the waters across Taiwan, particularly with U.S. support. And so, that has been sort of the evolution of Taiwan's military over time, which is that we're going to maintain our technological edge. We're going to maintain kind of cutting edge hardware. Uh, we're going to go kind of toe to toe with um, the Chinese in terms of capabilities. Now that has rapidly started to change by the 2000s when you saw the PLA's budget kind of skyrocket, when you saw military doctrine change, when you saw the reorganization into kind of regional um, areas, when you saw kind of a greater focus on joint force 
um, capabilities when they started making investments in their Navy and Air Force and so forth. And the calculus had rap- has rapidly, rapidly changed since. But Taiwan has not. And and there's and the reason is because if you look at the past two administrations from 2000, 2008, and then 2008 to 2016, is that nobody took this threat of PRC, a, a PRC military threat seriously. So the military was allowed to to essentially wither. We our GDP spending went from about seven percent in the seventies and eighties to about like uh, one two percent, uh, just over two percent in the two thousands, and then by two thousand ten around it was below two percent and one point seven one point eight percent. We inherited. So, so as the Chinese were ramping up their military spend as a percent of GDP, Taiwan's was going the up the opposite way because we. Our military had held on to this idea for decades that we've always had the military edge, number one, and then number two, that there just would not be war. And so, and the PRC posed no threat. And and they didn't change kind of this whole idea of what the PRC looked like and the threat matrix did not change despite sort of actions um, that have taken place since the 2000s. And so in, in 2016, this is sort of the military we inherited, which is underfunded, underutilized, understaffed. Um, that had just phased out conscription and frankly was a complete mess in terms of recruitment. Um, and so that has sort of been the focus kind of in the initial stages, not necessarily on finding kind of a new strategic framework, but just on ensuring that we still had a functional military and, and ensuring that the budgets were being increased, ensuring that new hardware was coming. So, and, and again, so that was sort of the background. Of what and, we and, and that's even the case, even though you've had, of course, military engagements with the PRC in the 50s. There was a real crisis and threat of invasion in the 90s during the so-called Third Taiwan Strait Crisis. All of that was ignored just you know five years later, and people were still pretending that the threat was not there. Exactly, exactly. And some of that was due to just not understanding threats. Some of this was due to political reasons. You have to keep in mind that the last administration before Tsai had come in had a very China-friendly approach. I mean, Ma Ying-jeou even... Um, engaged in a summit with Xi Jinping prior to um, his, um, his him departing office in May 2016, and so there was a completely different political approach to China that 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 necessitated this idea of a more peace, peaceful military, you know, development. But anyways, but so and then and then after Tsai took office, so you're engaged in kind of you're engaged in increasing defense, blah 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 blah, and then and then this one person came along called Li Ximing, and Li Ximing was a Navy general that rose to the ranks and became chief of general staff. And, and so when he was chief of general staff, he took a look at the military and he said, hold on a second. You know, what are we doing? Like we're so far removed from kind of the threat matrix looks today. And we're so focused on what the threat matrix looked 30 years ago that we're no longer a capable force of defending Taiwan's sovereignty. And so he proposed this whole radical idea that we needed to disregard or deprioritize kind of um, heavy conventional equipment and capabilities that just did not make sense. So he was like, what do we need huge destroyers and frigates for? I mean, what we, I mean, they're not survivable. What we need are smaller uh, missile corvettes and and that are nimble, you know, agile can disappear and come back and take one or two kind of heavier ships down. And then what we need instead of tanks are, are, um, are, are, are essentially, you know, more urban trained, um, um, infantry with kind of stingers and javelins and they're able to function more independently and what we need instead of you know this huge air force are you know effective strike missiles um, capable of doing for example anti-ship um, operations and and again that are survivable and he's like this is kind of the military we we need 
you know, in the 21st century, you know, in respect to our military objectives and consistent with our national security strategy. And then that proved too radical for many people with an MND. And that proved too radical for many of the generals that, you know, were, came about in the earlier era of Taiwan holding this technological edge, blah, 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 blah. And so, and so he, in a sense, was not exactly ousted, but ousted from his role. Um, and that has been a disappointment, I guess, to many people that care about this issue. So anyways, my point being, you know, I'm trying to be in as forthright and honest in a sense that, like I said, I think we're moving in the right direction. I think everybody's on board. I think what we're lacking right now is the speed commiserate with the threat we face. And sort but of when you say everyone's on board, you're talking about the current government. Political, politically, politically. And I think... But KMT you know, and, is and certainly bring, not on board, right? Well, MND, I think, MND has their considerations and, and their considerations, you know... Okay, sorry. Maybe maybe I will... If you give me a bit more time, Dimitri, I'll, I'll, I'll share with you kind of MND's considerations. And people find that they're not completely, completely off whack. But, but it, it is true that there is some harmonization that needs to go on. So MND believes that one of the threats we face right now is gray zone tactics. And and MND believes that, for example, we need fighter planes because we see a great incursion of um of Chinese fighter jets in Taiwan's ADIS. Uh we need frigates because we need to ensure a blockade scenario. We're able to fight past a blockade scenario. We need all of this stuff because there's specific uses for it. Quite Dimitri, you and I are focused on are kind of the invasion scenario that MND also believes is a priority, but also, but maybe not of a higher tire than kind of all these other gray zone scenarios that they envision, which includes seizure of offshore islands, blah 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 blah. So again, the point is that the point is that that I think politically um, there is a consensus that the biggest threat we face is the existentialist one, but uh, in terms of operationally, it's still challenging and it will take time to bring everybody um everybody as as in our generals and everybody fully on board with this but it is a process that this administration is very committed to and it is a process that is undergoing and i will highlight one point that this sort of challenge is not unique here to taiwan uh, and one example is what's happening in the u.s marine corps right now which is uh admiral berger has made this idea that we don't need tanks we don't need a lot of conventional weaponry uh, we don't need, for but what we do need are kind of island hopping and agile, nimble, survivable assets, and that even that sort of idea has attracted a lot of backlash. In, it it in, did, in but I'll tell you this: cycles. he moved forward with this, and I think by the end of this year, the Marine Corps is basically not have not going to have many tanks at all. So this went very rapidly, and by the way, this was a general in this case, but we do in the United States have a pretty strong control, civilian control of our military. And ultimately, the budgets are being decided by the civilians in the Pentagon with advice, obviously, from the military. And I don't get that that's the same in Taiwan, right? I mean, obviously, you know, conceptually, the, the president is in charge as a commander in chief, but it feels like the Ministry of Defense sometimes runs its own show and that the controls, civilian controls of the military are a little bit looser. Is that correct? I mean, to a certain extent, we just don't have the same setup as the U.S. Like, there is no office of the Secretary of Defense that's staffed by political civilians that make political decisions, and then sort of have the services being uh, services and a joint staff be in charge of operational decisions. Like, there is not that that clear differentiation doesn't exist here in Taiwan. I mean, our military basically um, 
um, is uh, the operational and the political and the p- political policies are decided sort of within the same framework. So that, in a sense, is a bit more challenging um, compared to U.S. for making quick and rapid decisions or or engaging in kind of major um, changes uh, in within the system. Um, so, you know, again, I, I highlighted the Berger comment, not because, again, I'm making excuses for time. I'm not. I've made, made very clear that the speed we're moving at needs to be a lot faster than it is today. What, what I am trying to say is that these difficulties exist. And, and whether, um, you know, even in a system where, like the U.S. where you do have OSD, you still have retired kind of Marine Corps commandants come out and, and former defense, minister, uh, defense secretaries say that, hey, this is not, you know, this is, the, you're, you're moving in the wrong direction. You'll have pushback everywhere. Our pushback here in Taiwan will be a, a bit more intense simply because, again, we don't have sort of that OSD system that allows a clear differentiation between political objectives and military uh, um, operational objectives. So, again, to this point, and, and I, I will draw a full circle here because I know our time is close, uh, drawing close to an end, Dimitri, which is this. Um, I think the time administration is moving in the right direction. I think there's a lot of impatience, and that's understandable. Ultimately, I mean, defense is our own responsibility in Taiwan. I don't think there's any serious Taiwanese person that is in charge of our national security or our foreign affairs that, that realistically believes that this is an obligation of the U.S. to help. I don't think that is the case, and I hope that is not the case. And my experience in government has shown me that it's not the case. Defense is our responsibility. It would be great. It would be fantastic if our de- if our partners and allies around the world, you know, show deterrence against China and support Taiwan in this. But ultimately, this is our job, and this is one job uh, we're going to try to do right. Uh, now, again, we're not we're, we're not disregarding the threat. Our GDP, our, our defense spending has increased by about 35% over the past six years alone, which is which is actually quite, quite fast for a democratic society. You know, we're making new um, purchases of, for example, asymmetric weaponry outside of just tanks or planes. I mean, we're purchasing CDCMs, coastal defense cruise missiles. You know, there's a huge, huge emphasis on the production of new Shongfeng anti-ship missiles. And so forth. And so there, there, there has been actions and moves in the right direction. We've reintroduced conscription of the year. You know, the, the reserve training has been completely overhauled. You know, we're, we're no longer doing, for example, bayonet training. You know, f- people are using simulators on javelins and stingers and so forth. So again, my point is we're not, it's not that we're not moving in the right direction. We are. It's, it's the point is that maybe we need to move a bit faster based on the threat matrix we see, particularly based on the fact that Xi Jinping has made it a priority for the PLA to have the capabilities, not necessarily, you know, a hard date in terms of an invasion scenario, but at least the capabilities if he so chose to do so by 2027. So that's sort of the timeline we're running against. And so we're going to have to move a bit faster uh, to, to, to move kind of uh, in accordance to that sort of time frame we see. Yeah. You, you mentioned, Vincent, the blockade scenarios, the gray zone tactics of incursions into air defense zones and so forth. And... As you know, I, I, I've run a number of war games on Taiwan invasions, and my own sense is that those things are a little bit of a red herring because at the end of the day, China is either going to mobilize for invasion, which is going to take months. It's not going to be Xi Jinping waking up one day and ordering an invasion. We're going to see the buildup similar to what we saw in the buildup of Russian troops on the border of Ukraine. It took many months, and this is even more complex because obviously there's a very important naval component, potentially airborne paratrooper component, and so forth. 
And if you don't have that, if you just have these incursions and blockades, then their bluff is going to be called. And they're not going to be ready to move forward if they're challenged by Taiwan or the United States or maybe even Japan in conjunction with Japan. And it's, it's not going to be successful. So in my, my sense of it is, and I'm curious if you agree, is that if you do have sort of the blockade or those types of scenarios emerging, it's, it's going to be prelude to an invasion where the force is already mobilized, they're prepared for an invasion, and maybe they start with a blockade to see if they can win the war without fighting. And if they don't, they move forward with an invasion. But the invasion is the ultimate thing that you have to worry about, not the blockade that will you know, basically make Taiwan fall without even being backed up by a threat of invasion. Do you agree with that? I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I actually, I, I do agree because, I mean, that's, that's a point I, I drew in earlier as well, which is that these may be valid scenarios, but the existentialist scenario is the invasion scenario. And I think we, approach, we can approach this rationally as well, which is the point that if China is going to suffer all the, consequences, all the consequences that they're going to suffer for engaging in a blockade, or a, uh, a surgical strike or any other gray zone kind of tactic that really, you know, challenges Taiwan's stability and, 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 and security, then then they're going to suffer all the consequences anyway. So if they're going to suffer all the consequences, why not do it in a way that best leaves them 100% sure of them achieving their objectives, right? And so, you know, a blockade may or may not succeed. A surgical strike may or may not succeed. Off- seizing offshore islands may or may not succeed. An invasion, if they so chose and had the confidence level, in their view, you know, may have a higher chance of succeeding. So if you're going to suffer all the consequences anyway, why not just go all out? Yeah. You know, I, I mean, Dimitri, n- none of us can replace Xi Jinping. I mean, nobody really knows what she is thinking. Like that's that's kind of the beauty of co- these communist systems. Well, that, that's right? one just, of the things we learned last year is that. You don't necessarily are going to have uh, your enemy choose the best possible plan with regards to Putin invading Ukraine. Sometimes politics and internal dynamics of the regime may intervene and, and they'll choose an option that's not necessarily the smartest. But you make the preparations for the worst case scenario. And so I think that's precisely what needs to take place here in Taiwan is that preparation for a worst case scenario. All right. Last question, Vincent. You know, this podcast is listened by people all over the world, but primarily it's an American podcast listen a lot by people here in D.C. and around the country. What is at stake for America here? Obviously, you're a Taiwan patriot. You've got family on the island. I understand why you and your compatriots want to fight and defend the island. And obviously, you know, we care about democracy. We care about people's freedoms. But we're not sending our troops to fight in Ukraine. We're not sending our troops to fight in lots of places where democracy may be challenged or human rights are being violated, let's say in Yemen and elsewhere. What is at stake, do you think, for Americans and American national security if Taiwan falls to China in terms of our regional influence, in terms of our relationship with allies, in terms of our ability to have presence in this most important, economically most important region of the world? Paint that picture for us. So I'm very sympathetic and understanding of this idea that the American people have been told that every single conflict is a threat to their national security and, and just and, and and various ways have been found to justify US intervention in Vietnam, to justify US intervention in kind of the Middle East, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and all of this these interventions have been posed as 
hindering this essential threat to the American way of life. And, and ultimately, none of them have really panned out and, and been consistent to what sort of these original arguments were, 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 were. So it's, I think, understandable to a certain degree when people disagree with this idea that, that a fall of Taiwan would, 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 would hugely change sort of, um, the American, um, peace framework that has, well, not the American, but, well, like, I guess just international order that has existed since the second world war, but certainly the U S has played a major part in upholding, but that it would also pose this direct security threat to the U.S. So I understand when people say, don't necessarily see it that way. But I will say this. The PRC poses a threat like we've never seen before in the history of, I would say, um, of, of modern um, development. In a sense that the Soviet Union never reached economic parity with the U.S. China will, uh, at one point or another, reach economic parity with the U.S., um, it, in fact, in terms of purchasing power parity, maybe it has already reached that level. Um, nobody poses, has posed um, an existentialist threat sort of to um, the post-Second World War kind of framework as China does right now. Uh, even, I, I would say, even Russia does not pose that same level of urgency and challenge to the international framework that has governed kind of interactions between countries um, since the Second World War. Um, no country really has, uh, no, no, no challenge really has emerged like China um, in terms of disinformation, in terms of hybrid warfare, in terms of gray zone tactics, in terms of undermining democracies as China has done together with um, growing sophisticated technologies to do so. Um, in in since the Second World War, so I mean, all of this combines to this idea that that and and I think it's fully justified through the evidence we have that that China dominating half of the world is just it's it's just going to alter the sort of rest of the world forever, and that if people are okay with communism with 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 the PRC, maybe not even communism, with just an authoritarian dictatorship dominating um the Indo-Pacific region, dominating um maybe basically 60, 70 percent of trade around the world, uh dominating critical technology, dominating venues of disinformation and affecting democratic discourse, um and and, and essentially dominating this idea that that maybe in a discussion of authoritarianism versus democracy, authoritarianism wins, then by all means, then then China maybe in that view isn't so much a threat. But I think rational people will see otherwise. And so Dimitri, I have a hard time sort of saying this in a way that because I'm talking to an audience that doesn't live 130 miles from 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 China and is in many ways very much divorced from the threat. But I will say as somebody, so I will say through a personal perspective that we live under this threat every day and that we live under the threat of disinformation. We live under the threat of hybrid tactics. We live under the threat of them affecting our democratic discourse, funding kind of uh, funding ways of undermining our democracy. We live under the threat of hundreds of missiles pointed directly at us, at our, at my family, at my children. And I don't want to wish this on anybody else. You know, I, I, and, and, and I fundamentally believe that if the Chinese were able to achieve their objectives on Taiwan, we will see a next step and we will see a step after that. And we will see these steps that 
ultimately, I think, pose a fundamental challenge to our way of life everywhere in the world um, in democracies. But in, but in terms of immediate steps, you know, if Taiwan gets conquered by China, that will alter the region immediately, right? A lot of the allies that we have in the region that are hardcore allies for us, like Japan and so forth, will find ways to try to accommodate a new, much bigger power that, that would, would have just emerged. Would you agree with that? Well, like I said, I mean, it, it completely undermines the U.S. framework that's been built up since, since the Second World War, right? I mean, you, you have the U.S. Uh, allies here in the region. You have uh, Korea, you have Japan, you have the Philippines, you have others that would immediately find U.S. credibility and legitimacy undermined here. And maybe it would cause political decisions that are unforeseen right now. But again, like I'm trying to speak from perspective that 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 like these are the people like you and I that work in policy that see these things. But how does this impact everyday Americans? And, and I've been trying to articulate that maybe unsuccessfully. But my, my point being is that U.S. intervention, U.S. potential support for Taiwan is outside kind of a small closed door decision making circle. I think it, it, it very much ultimately will involve uh, sort of American public's discourse on this issue. And, and I hope to expose this in a way that that the American public feels and understands sort of threat that China poses to us, but the threat China poses to all of us around the world. And it's it, it's very real and it's 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 there. And it's not just the comes of civilization. It's already taking place uh, here in Taiwan, but also in Australia, also in other countries around the world. And that's not something we want to see, you know, encouraged. And so the best way, again, they may treat, and, and you and I both know this, and we've spoken about this before, the best way isn't to take action after war breaks out. The best way is to take action now. And so, again, it's up to us. It's our responsibility, our defense, our way of life that we need to protect. But ultimately, it is also something that affects everyday Americans. And so if the more we can do now and to stave off an invasion scenario, I think the best end result will be. And so, again, I don't want to see war. We're doing everything we can right now to avoid war, not to actually engage in war. But to do so, we need to make sacrifices here in Taiwan, uh, most pre preeminently, but also, you know, I think countries need to make decisions around the world about how much they're willing to do on Taiwan. And that decision should come ideally before conflict starts rather than after conflict breaks out. Very well said, Vincent. Thank you so much for coming on the show. As you know, I've run a number of these war games looking at the implications of, of invasion, how it might unfold. And it all reminds me of a 1983 movie, War Games, with Matthew Broderick. I'm not sure if you've seen it long time ago where you had a supercomputer that is almost launching a thermonuclear war and realizes at the very end by being forced to play tic-tac-toe that the only winning move is not to play for both sides to stand down and it strikes me that that's really the only solution here in this crisis is to make sure that China is deterred from invading Taiwan because if it moves forward with that invasion It'll be a catastrophe for Taiwan, for China, for America, and really for the whole world. It truly could be an, another world war that will be devastating in terms of lives, economic impact, and massive destruction of property and, and so forth. So thank you so much for your insights. It's great to understand how the Taiwanese people and politicians are thinking about this. And I'm sure our audience will find it very valuable. Thank you, Dimitri. I'm always happy to end these podcasts on a happy and optimistic note. <laughs> but All thank right. you, Dimitri, for drawing attention on this issue. Thank you. Take care.